Hi friends, my name is Kevin. Welcome to the Via Media Podcast. The brand of Christianity known as evangelicalism has a complex history and an even more complicated reputation. In November of 2016, several demographers published a now famous statistic that 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump for president. Now, there is nuance and controversy to that statistic. However, the frequent sighting of that number was evidence that a much deeper set of fractures had been crumbling for quite some time. As a religious identity and as a political segment of our civic society, there are significant questions about what evangelicalism is, what it should be, and why people have left, and what could be said about those who are still deeply unsettled from within. Dr. David P. Gushy has been an insider to evangelicalism for decades as a professor, author, and pastor. He has written and published extensively on Christian ethics, theology, and political engagement. His book, Kingdom Ethics, Following Jesus in Contemporary Context that he co-authored with Glenn Stassen is a standard textbook used widely in seminaries and Christian colleges. And in 2014, David made headlines when he published Changing Our Mind, a Christian and biblical argument for full LGBTQ inclusion in the church. In alignment with Via Media's core values of curiosity and hope, his recent book After Evangelicalism explores this shift in Christianity and proposes that we consider its history for perspective, its core essence for identity, and our conviction and commitment to the way of Jesus as the way forward. Thank you all for joining this community in this exploration. Here's my conversation with Dr. David Gushy. Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this uh, live conversation with Via Media. The first thing I want to do is thank our partners, our co-sponsors, Spark Church and New College Berkeley for uh, sponsoring and uh, partnering with us in this particular event to bring to you David, Dr. David Gushy, who is the author of too many books that I can hold up, but the two that I have readily available to me right now, a textbook that is used in seminaries all over, Kingdom Ethics by Glenn Stassen and David Gushy, and uh, his one of his most recent books. He has another one out after this one, but the book of conversation and topic for tonight is After Evangelicalism, A Path to a New Christianity. David, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. Thanks for the invitation, Kevin. It's good to be with you and those you have gathered. Yeah. Okay, um, we're going to go through a conversation around the topic of after evangelicalism. For those of you who are watching online, you'll see the Slido event number down at the below at the bottom of your screen. We've already had a couple people submit some questions. So throughout this time, please submit additional questions and upvote them. And we will ask uh, David those questions uh, towards the end here. Um, David, I'd like to start actually with a quote from Isaac Sharp. I believe he was a student of yours and has uh, another book coming up, but you referenced his work. And um, I he was incredibly kind and gracious, by the way. He sent me his entire thesis and I was able to peruse some of it, all like 800 pages of it. So it was a really hefty piece. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what the book comes out. But just a couple snippets that I think um, will get us started in this particular conversation. He writes on uh, page 827, evangelicalism, strictly speaking, does not exist. It has never really existed, in fact. It is cropped up in a host of times and places, moved in and through a variety of more discrete Christian traditions, and been embodied in a panoply of historical figures and groups. And he goes on to explain a little bit more of this and would um, articulate that at this particular juncture, very similar to, I think, what you're writing about. He writes uh, a couple pages later, some may stay and fight for change. Others may give up the ghost and shake the dust from their sandals. So my question for you to uh, kind of get started is, what is this evangelicalism of which you are writing about, of which you are promoting an after? And are you staying and fighting or are you giving up the ghost? Well, it's I think it's a great place to start. And by the way, I'm really glad uh, that you read a lot of Isaac's thesis, which is about to be published in a, a much shorter form with Erdman's um, brilliant work. Uh, uh, there's a lot of a lot of work being done right now on this very question of 
if you know, if anything, what is or was evangelicalism? And we're coming off of uh, a generation of scholarship that that was written mainly by self-identified evangelical historians like uh, Mark Knoll or George Marston, who were within the community, who believed in the in the identity and the community, and intended to define evangelicalism theologically mainly with broad characteristics like being biblically oriented or emphasizing the cross or something like that um but a more a more critical historiography is developing now and i i, I it was always out there but it was the minority voice that's becoming more significant to say that capital e evangelicalism um was uh, a social construct um, created by some fundamentalists in the 1940s and early 1950s to differentiate a certain group of fundamentalists from another group of fundamentalists, as well as from mainline Protestants and other Christian groups. So it was um, it was a social construct. Uh, it was a retrieval of a term from the past. That word evangelical had been used before. Um, it's been used multiple times in Catholic and Protestant history, but it was a retrieval eventually of that word to say, we're not fundamentalist, we're not mainline liberal, we are evangelical. Hmm. And then to build a religious subculture uh, around that label. And that religious subculture has been being built for about 80 years. Um, it was an American product. It was a, a product of a certain group of fundamentalist men in the beginning that has broadened since then. Um, and it was a fabulously successful, you might say, rebranding exercise if you want to be really cynical, um, but certainly uh, a fabulously successful religious subculture creation project. Um, but But that project is staggering now. Mm. Some of its built-in problems, I think, have become apparent, and um, and a lot of us have felt like we do indeed need to shake the shake the dust of our feet off of you're out of that community. Um, and so I'm there now. I'm not in the staying and fighting mode I was for a while. I'm in the saying goodbye and trying to build something different on the other side. Yeah, part of I think the irony of what you just explained is that. Um, evangelicals saw themselves as a counter movement to fundamentalism. But what you write about in this book and what others have kind of noted is that this cultural phenomena and I mean, you're pretty explicit about saying an identity fusion between white evangelical and Republican um, with it, with this phrase of evangelical has in and of itself become kind of a neo fundamentalism or a kind of a new brand or a new kind of Fundamentalism, would that be an accurate um, description of, of your analysis? Um, I would say that it's, a, it's, an, it's an older problem. Um, when this group of fundamentalists like Carl Henry and Harold John Ockengay and Billy Graham uh, built and branded this thing called evangelicalism, they never really um, developed a coherent shared theology. Hmm. It was partly because it was a coalition movement of a variety of different confessions and, and ecclesiology. So you had Reformed and uh, Arminian, Wesleyan, Baptist, some Anabaptist, Pentecostal, uh, you know, evangelical covenant church, evangelical free church, non-denominational stuff. You had everybody in there, right? And they attempted to build a kind of a, a big tent, which meant we, we're not going to really focus on our theological differences, but on how we can uh, define what we have in common. Um, and so the, it, it has never really been possible for evangelicals to arrive at a shared theology, even though various people have attempted to articulate it. Yeah. And I think Isaac shows successfully that that whenever this movement has been challenged, especially by non-white, non-male, and non-Calvinist voices, 
it has um, returned to that kind of um, Calvinist, mainly white, straight, male, American, politically conservative starting point. It has returned and defaulted to that again and again. And this became especially explicit with the rise of the Christian right in the late 70s and early 80s. And the, I would say, the gradual transfer of evangelical cultural efforts from missions and evangelism and church planning and so on to being very visibly about politics, winning in secular politics. The, there was a, a conscious decision to marry up with the Republican Party and to pursue um, the church's missional goals through political efforts through the Republican Party, which is part of why people are so deeply disillusioned today, because no matter what the Republican Party becomes, uh, evangelicals and fundamentalists seem to remain happily loyal to yeah. to the Republican Party, whether it's the party of uh, Ronald Reagan or the party of Donald Trump. Yeah. I, so that's some... one thing that has gone wrong. But but yeah. Well, I was yeah. just going to say, I mean, the, the, the description, I mean, there's a lot of uh, particulars that we could tease out here. But I find um, where my mind kind of goes, I think is really important for us to understand for those of us who are trying to navigate these grand waters. You have kind of a, a movement that started as a kind of anti-fundamentalist movement, becomes fundamental, um, and because of its very essence of wanting to be big tent, you want to be big tent, you want to be inclusive. In many ways, you want to be evangelical, spreading the good news to anybody and everybody. But that very ethic or that very impulse dilutes. And we're going to maybe get to this, maybe getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. But you talk about, and you mentioned it, that there's a loss of a central driving theological core that can leave that cohesive. So it's there's kind of a void there that allows other factors like political and social factors to kind of take root within that particular movement. And so that that to me seems like a pretty incredible sociological strain. Like, you know, for those who don't understand that history, there's this real significant shift that doesn't that isn't in violation, I suppose, of what evangelicalism, capital E evangelicalism wanted to do. It feels very much sociologically determined in some ways. Would you say that if you're going to dilute or you're going to be big tent, if you're going to say, well, the core fundamentals don't aren't the, the main thing, then it opens yourself up. So help me navigate that. Um, I, it's There's a lot of complexity here, but here's a couple of things I would say. Um, I would say that the evangelicals never really agreed on what was non-negotiable. Right. Um, some some would would say that it, it was certain fundamental doctrinal beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, so the more confessional traditions, like the Calvinist tradition, they, they would say it's it's a set of uh, doctrinal affirmations, right? Right. Um, some would reduce that list of doctrinal affirmations to something like biblical inerrancy and say, well, that's all that it is. Um, but it was not really enough to sustain a movement, and they were always arguing about what actually could, could get you disqualified from really being an evangelical in good standing. Um, so, but then you have a lot of... Um, I mean, in the development of evangelicalism as a subculture, you have a lot of elements that are not especially theological. It's um, it's a music subculture. It's a worship right. subculture. It's a personality subculture, a uh, a church building subculture, a consumer subculture. Um, it's it's uh, it's the dispensationalist strand in like the Left Behind series and and it's Hillsong music or other versions of that and the big branded megachurch chains and and so and that actually was often even more devoid of theological content right and and then i would say since the late 70s with a real resurgence in the trump years evangelical just came to mean 
ultra reactionary, xenophobic, you name it, kind of white uh, politics of a conservative and ultra conservative nature. And that became the brand. That's so powerful now that there's polling data that shows <laughs> some people think the word evangelical actually means ultra conservative politics. Like yeah. the, it's been totally stripped of any religious content. It's just a kind of a it's a MAGA movement, and that's all that it is yeah. for some people. Yeah. And that brings us to your, I would say, two fundamental theses, conscientious objection, which is different from the ebb and flow. And then you're going to articulate what you call a Christian humanism. Now, I know that term actually has been around for some time. You're kind of um, reclaiming that idea in this new era and this new phenomena. So what um, makes conscientious objection then different or distinct from previous ebbs and flows of people leaving and then coming back and finding their way and, and feeling like, oh, I, I, I do miss something religious or something of tradition in my life. And then what is, how would you, simple, how would you articulate what Christian humanism is that should replace this evangelicalism or post-evangelicalism that we're talking about here? Um, I, on the first question, I would say that um, conscientious objection is when was when people leave out of a sense of of uh, core values being violated or of of having been offended deeply personally, traumatized. The word trauma is very much in the air these days, mm -hmm. right? So. I meet a number of uh, post-evangelicals who would who would say, well, it was, say, women who would say it was when I was told that my gifts were not wanted. Mm. Or uh, LGBT people who would say it was when uh, gay people were attacked from the pulpit and I felt um, totally violated. Uh, or I was, you know, they were forced to go undergo conversion therapy or something. Um, or uh, people of color who uh, would attend a, a white, predominantly white evangelical church and, and get very clear signals that they were not really welcome. Uh, or um, when people were told quite explicitly, unless you vote Republican, you're not really a Christian. Um, and then you know, and then you have the older kinds of things that have been an issue with fundamentalism really for over a hundred years. And that is when people are told you're not allowed to believe in modern science. It's wrong to take climate change seriously. You have to believe in an inerrant Bible. Um, you're not allowed to ask any questions. These are these are older phenomenon of a kind of a too narrow, too rigid uh, religious vision. You know, mm -hmm. um, so conscientious objection is, you know, you have people all over all over who are like, they believe that evangelicalism is positively destructive and they want to encourage people to flee as fast as they can. That's different from I just choose to go to a different church, right? It's right. it's much more much more profound than that, I think. Right. Yeah. You know, in the book, Kevin, I I I propose yeah. Yeah. Um in the book I propose um various uh elements of a post-evangelical theology and ethic church life that's what most of the book is about a lot of people have been struck by that phrase christian humanism i haven't really developed it into a programmatic statement yet or mm -hmm. anything but but what i am gesturing at it's it's on uh what page where is it anyway uh 37 whatever but it's it's a it's a proposal that the fundamentalist spirit, which never really went away in evangelicalism, was a spirit that that sets the the church apart from and against the world that assumes that our ways of knowing truth, for example, through the Bible, are are the only actual ways to know anything significant. That has a pretty narrow understanding of what human flourishing looks like uh, that tends towards a defensive posture in relation to the rest of the human family. 
And and I'm proposing that we have models in history, and I name Erasmus from the 15th, early 16th century, of of a more broadly humane, um, open, and um, and less defensive posture with uh, a religious vision that that says that God is for humanity, hmm. and God is for human flourishing, and we should be for human flourishing and human well-being as well. And that there are ways, and one of the things Erasmus was known for was his knowledge of the classical sources and not just the biblical sources and the church tradition, his effort to, to, to pay attention to all the major fonts of human learning. And I think that Christians should do that too. That's some of what I mean um, by, by Christian humanism. Yeah, I think some of the objections come because so much, well, of evangelicalism and fundamentalism has stated that the Christian worldview is fundamentally opposed to other contrarian, pagan, heathen worldviews, and humanism is one of those philosophies. And so it feels like we need to ground that term, the Erasmian idea, Christian humanism, with a religious grounding that seeks a philosophical outplay rather than a philosophical contrarianism, like an opposement, opposing, um, you know, kind of an aggressive anti-opposite of whatever Christian humanism is. Is that a, f sorry, I'm stumbling over my words here, but it's the, mm -hmm. the general idea that Christian humanism is not a humanism just with a Christian flavor, that it comes right. out of a fundamentally Christian theology, a biblical theology. Is that... That that's that feels yes. like that needs to be teased out. That's what I'm trying to say, and um, and if I were rewriting the book today, I would do a little bit more with my one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm. Um, there's a book that came out about the time my book came out um, that was called Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Christian Humanism, mm. and um, what this author, whose name was uh, Zimmerman, um, meant was that. Bonhoeffer's incarnational theology, his robust Christology, um, is actually the grounding of his deep concern for human beings um, and human well-being. Uh, and I actually write about that some in my book called The Sacredness of Human Life. Uh, I think it was Bart who said, um, any in a theology which says that God became human in Christ um, elevates all of humanity uh, and not just the humanity of the God man Jesus. Mm. Mm. Um, that if God became human, all human life matters immeasurably. Um, the entire trajectory of a human life is, has been experienced by God in the flesh. And, and that the concern of this God man Jesus for all human beings was visible in ministry and, of course, is embodied on the cross. Yeah. Um, so I want a robustly Christocentric humanism um, uh, and not just a kind of a secular humanism with a little bit of thin Christian veneer on it. Yeah, I think that's really important to articulate. Thank you for doing so, which is um, leads us to the next question that I actually have. Uh, maybe takes us into the next section here. You're right on page 27. We need to develop or discover a version of Christian faith and ethics that finally leaves all vestiges of this subculture behind without leaving Jesus behind. Um, one of my observations of this kind of um, program that we now all find ourselves in is, and I kind of like to ask you about this, you, you talk about Jesus according to Jesus, and then you actually have a segment, um, Jesus according to David, gushy according to Jesus or according to the Bible. Um, and I kind of want to, before we get to the content of that, ask the question, what are the actual tools that we use? Because um, I didn't see a lot in your book about, let's say, linguistic uh, history, archaeology, cultural analysis. Um, and there's been movements throughout the last several centuries of, you know, trying to find that real Jesus, you know, starting with Albert Schweitzer, of course, and the pursuit of who is this Jesus that we can actually say. So my question for you is, if it's true that we want to leave the vestiges of the subculture of evangelicalism behind, 
but we don't want to leave Jesus behind. What are the tools by which we actually get to understand this Jesus? How do we how do we construct a Jesus? And that's, you know, still a task that we have to do, given that Jesus lived 2000 years ago. Yeah. Um, one of the things that that I'm thinking these days is that both fundamentalism and modern Christian liberalism were indeed products of the modern world. Um, you don't even begin to have this language of fundamentalism versus liberalism till the late 19th century, and then it explodes in the early 20th century. Um, it it emerges as a response to uh you know to the enlightenment and modern ways of knowing things you know the dethroning of revelation and christian tradition a more historical understanding of both the composition of scripture and the development of doctrine um, as well as uh, greater respect for human rational capacity you know uh, empiricism and the scientific method and you might say that that the fundamentalism versus liberalism debate was a kind of a product of that particular era. Right. Yep. Now, I think it can be argued that we're not in that era anymore. We're in a post we're in a postmodern era in which certainty about any way of knowing things, whether it's revelation, claims to revelation or tradition or scripture or science or reason, um, all knowledge claims are are disputed. Right. There's no consensus way of knowing things, and that's the the, the world we we find ourselves in. Um, and so we are, I think, left with with a need to explore the entirety of the Christian tradition, setting aside the kind of modernist arguments that dominated for 150 years or something, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, I, I try to show in the book a, respe- a respectful engagement with the entire biblical canon, not treated as inerrant, but treated as as uh, sacred for for forming the church community um, and the way of followers of Jesus, uh, taking tradition seriously, engaging it, um, uh, you know, in all of its, you know, listening to the various branches that we left behind in Protestantism, are we? I mean, I take Roman Catholicism very seriously and and study it closely. Mm. I'm not as well versed in Eastern Orthodoxy, but some of us are. Um, the various uh, Protestant uh, groups, um, as well as you know the what is discovered in the modern various methodologies from anthropology to sociology to psychology to whatever. So. What I don't want to communicate is that this is only accessible, that, that kind of a post-evangelical faith is only accessible to academic experts, because that's that's elitist. You know, um, I think in some cases, all people need to do is is return to some of the best insights of the specific traditions that were kind of swallowed up mm-hmm. by evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, let let Pentecostals remember what it was to be Pentecostal and Baptist be Baptist and Anabaptist be Anabaptist and Wesleyans be Wesleyans and, and let the evangelical covenant church remember what it is to be that, you know? So, so I'm not, I'm not saying everybody has to reinvent all of Christianity. There are resources that are already there. Mm. Um, you know, I propose some resources that are significant for me, but, but there's not going to be a single consensus version here. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I could talk about specific elements if you want, but but we don't. We're, I'm not asking for a, a kind of an expert. Only experts can be post-evangelicals. I do think that that we can recover traditions that have gone underground a little bit, but have strength to them if we would allow them to breathe and be their best selves again. Yeah. So, you're, in many ways, it's it's interesting because it sounds like you're articulating some version of the big tent idea that you don't have to narrow your expression and your love of Jesus, your fellowship, your discipleship of Jesus to one specific tradition and one specific, you know, parochial expression. So it's you, you widen the tent a little bit um, in that sense. Well, it's, well, I think what I'm saying is that evangelicalism kind of pretended to be a, a tradition. Hmm. But what it was, was a, a coalition. 
mm. of traditions. But the problem was that this this coalition of traditions was dominated by a certain set of people who favored some versions of the subsidiary traditions more than others. Yeah. So it became really difficult, for example, to be a peace and justice Mennonite evangelical because mainstream U.S. evangelicalism anyway was not into peace and justice stuff very much. The Mennonites were clearly a minority. Right. Um, uh, or, you know, holiness uh, and pietist traditions have their own strength, but the heavily doctrinaire nature of fundamentalism kind of dominated and, and drove underground the pietist and, and holiness strands. So I guess what I'm saying is there's a reason why these various Protestant traditions developed and they were healthier when they were being themselves than when they were swallowed up by branded capital E evangelicalism. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Um, I think the phraseology coalition rather than denomination or expression is an, an extremely helpful one. Um, I have this question that just kind of came to my mind. You have experience being a pastor as well. I would kind of like to hear you share. We have, man, so many people, with that conscientious objection who are leaving will may never come back. But as soon as you start to articulate or try to lovingly share that there really is a faith expression that is life giving, that is central, holy, sacred, meaningful. Um, but it's attached to all of the elements of their evangelical brand that they are leaving that have, that have been swallowed up. What do you say to those? folks? How do you pastor them, care for them um, that are just so deeply broken? Like, I don't even, don't even talk to me about the Bible. Don't even talk to me about attending church. Don't even talk to me about any of the sacraments. Don't, I mean, I don't, you don't want to hear any of that stuff. Uh, what's your response to that? Because after post ex evangelical, whatever word you want to call it is not an intellectual leaving. It's an emotional one too. It's a relational, it's an identity leaving. So if you're proposing this yeah. idea that you know, there is something really wonderful and beautiful that can be had here. But man, those walls are up. What, what, you know, tell me a little bit how you approach that and what kind of conversations do you have in that regard? I'm, I'm really happy to talk at the pastoral level, Kevin, because I mean, that's my heartbeat. You know, it really is. Um, I, I teach college students, many of whom are already deeply in the I'm done with church mode already right. by the time they're 19 years old, right? Um, and I teach seminary students who are five years older, but some of them, even though they're in seminary and thinking about serving the church, they have serious ambivalence about, about maybe some of the churches that they came from. Um, trauma, trauma is a real thing. Um, it is something that is fundamentally best dealt with in therapy and, um, and in, you know, I totally believe in the concept of triggers that for some people, church is just going to be triggering and all things associated with church are going to be triggering and they're just not going to come back. Um, that doesn't mean that it might not be possible to have ongoing conversations in ways and in spaces that don't trigger. Yeah. You know, it's it's lunch somewhere or, you know, I think this whole podcast space is remarkable. I've been on so many dozens of podcasts from around the world in the last two years. Right. Uh, I think we should understand this podcast space as a kind of, a, in many cases, a post-evangelical safe space for people. Mm. Mm. They're not in a building that triggers them. They're not around people that trigger them. If they're not happy with the conversation, they can just go away. Mm. Right. Um, so I think that's actually creative mission right now is, is hosting spaces like like this, like yeah. in conversations like what we're doing now. Um, oh, David. Oh, David. You know, what I, what yeah. you're asking is pastors and clergy to let go of the form, let, let go of the way that we've done things for, yeah. you know, hundreds of years. You know, you, what? You don't want them to go to church like, you know, kind of a thing. So that's <laughs> yeah. well, it, it may be that for some people like you, you go to where the sheep are. Right. Um, they're not going to come to where you are if they've been wounded by by what you represent, the steeple and the and the pews and, and the Bibles in the pews and all of that. Um, what mom and dad said to them or what grandpa said or what the pastor said, it's really sad. We did this. 
you might say, we did this to our own children and grandchildren. Mm. And so we need to be creative in figuring out how to do better on the other side. Yeah. And of course, yeah. these kids themselves are are coming up with their own ways of, of having conversations too that, that work for them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're never going to be able to reach everybody. I, I quoted my figure 40% of post-evangelicals are not in church anywhere. They don't want to be in church anywhere. Right. We, may, we may lose more than 40%. Um, but, but I don't oh know. I was ordained to be a minister of the gospel when I was 25 years old, and, and I'm still that. And I want people to see how wonderful Jesus is and to want to have a relationship with him. Yeah, yeah. And that's not going to go away from me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, you mentioned that it requires us to be creative. I would add to that, that in many ways it requires us just to be open because as younger generations, I mean, this is the general generational shift that just is the continual uh, element of life of people, you know, generation after generation. So we just need to be open to listening carefully to how different generations are, what they're experiencing and what they're telling us regarding how they're experiencing life and how they're engaging with religion and faith and spirituality and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit, ask you about the burning children test, which was, I, I would say, one of the most painful passages I've read in a book in a long time. Incredibly important, profoundly clarifying. Um, could you explain what that test is and how it applies to your theological construct? And um, I'm going to throw up a, a comment here. Uh, let's see if I can make this work here. I'm going to throw up a comment that um, somebody that in our Slido asked, no statement theological or otherwise should be made that would not be credible in the presence of the burning children. And this person asks if you can give an illustrative example. Um, uh, everything happens for a reason. Uh, God is in control. Um if anything happens on this planet, God is the one who is ultimately responsible for it. Mm -hmm. Those are statements, I believe, that are not credible in the presence of the burning children. Yeah. So that that statement, by the way, it's so interesting. Two, two parts of this book really appear to uh, surprise people and to resonate with people. They ask me about it every time I'm interviewed, pretty much. One is the Christian humanism piece, mm. and the other is this statement, the burning children test. Um, that must mean on the latter that most evangelical and post-evangelical Christians haven't really engaged Holocaust theology very much. Mm. This statement comes out of Holocaust theology. It was uh, offered by one of my uh, beloved teachers, Rabbi Irving Greenberg of New York, and um it was something that he arrived at through considerable pain when he was um, when he was working on the theological implications of the Holocaust and discovered in the historical literature that sometimes, at least at Auschwitz, children were burned alive when the gas chambers and crematoria were not working at, at capacity or just because they found it convenient to kill children that way. And... And Greenberg, thinking of children being burned alive at Auschwitz, his faith, his all all previous understandings of Jewish faith were challenged for him. He concluded no statement should be made that would not be credible in the presence of the burning children. And it has a broader implication. You know, James Cohn at Union talked about this. He knew Rabbi Greenberg and knew this statement. He was one of my teachers. Uh, liberation theologian and James Cohn said this has broader implications no statement theological or otherwise should be made that would not be credible in the presence of people on slave ships crossing the Atlantic mm -hmm. uh, that would not be credible in the presence of um, Matthew Shepard being murdered uh, by people who hated gay people or um, not be credible in the presence of uh, murdered indigenous Americans right um, in other words, human dignity and human suffering matters. Our picture of God and of God's activity in the world and of Jesus and of what it means to be a follower of Jesus or just to be a good person in the world must be responsive to the world as it actually is, 
um, including all of its grotesque cruelty and evil. And so this is one way in which Holocaust theology and liberation theology have affected have affected me. I, I engage both for the first time when I was a PhD student 35 years ago. But here on the other side of evangelicalism, these strands of thought have resurfaced for me in some powerful ways, kind of set free from having to try to frame everything within evangelical categories. I'm rediscovering some resources that I found very compelling some time ago and that are now becoming more central again in my own articulation of the faith. Can you help us understand how did the incredibly transformative revolutionary message of Jesus become so narrow-minded, parochial, and discounting of this world that you're supposed to be relevant in. So I'm just following up with this basic fundamental test. The Jesus movement moves into the world to transform the world. And from to do whatever summarization of the last 2,000 years of you know Christian influence upon history, for all practical purpose, we can just stipulate that it was incredibly influential in transforming the way people thought about ethics, people, the way people thought about goodness and love and loving your neighbor and loving your enemy, right? All of these fundamental Christian, what caused that to shift out of that fundamental essence to, we now need to do systematized theology and we need to make sure that you believe in this particular statement of faith and we need to narrow it down to these fundamentals. And I've even heard people throughout my Life say we don't care about the suffering because what ultimately matters is their personal salvation, whether or not they're going to heaven versus hell, you know, whether or not they're in poverty or whether they're not they're being oppressed. So can you tease out for us like what caused that to happen? And the reason why I want to call it out is because if it's still at play, just merely articulating that would be incredibly helpful for us. Um. Well, I'll tell you what um, Walter Rauschenbusch, the social gospel writer, said in in his explorations of that, one of my heroes, who I also mention in, in the book, he would say that the, um, the radical ethical sensitivity of Jesus following, especially in the tradition of the Jewish prophets, um, survives for a couple hundred years, maybe, in Christianity, um, begins to begins to gradually be weakened um, as as the church uh, grows in numbers and moves from the margins. And then, of course, once you have Constantine uh, becoming Christian and uh, Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. Um, and then all kinds of doctrinal fights over what is actually Orthodox Christianity. So both church and state by the fourth century are turning a lot of their attention to defining true doctrine and enforcing it with the power of the state in many in many cases. And and so a lot of the the um, the social justice and from from below from the margins vision of Jesus is is it just forced underground in the from the fourth century forward and then you know christianity becomes the state religion of the most empire of the world and then when the roman empire falls apart uh the successor uh kingdoms and so on if they stayed christian they still are functioning as it's like state religion Mm. um and the reformation didn't change that Mm -hmm. except on the anabaptist wing the reformation was still which version of doctrine will be the state religion and we're going to kill each other over that right mm-hmm. and with in that same period have uh european colonialism spreading all over the world and and so it's not just state religion it's imperial religion and it's colonial religion and christianity you, know, you, you still had those teachings of jesus you still had the prophets in the canon you still had the tradition of uh, that that was there, but all of that was submerged to uh, imperial, colonial, doctrinaire, kind of otherworldly, kind of Christianity. 
<laughs> one could easily describe it as a conscious effort to weaken the very strands of teaching and so on that were central for Jesus. Wait a second. And this, by the way, is what you, you, some you, people are calling like. <laughs> you need to emphasize that. I mean, that, that's pretty, pretty spectacular. The very, yep. the very tradition or movement of this revolutionary, you know, Jewish itinerant teacher is being subverted or oppressed by the inheritors in this later tradition. I mean, that's that's a pretty incredible statement, Dr. David Gushy, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I, I, yeah, and I say, I think in after evangelicalism, sometimes we discover that that to follow Jesus with integrity as we meet him in the Gospels is to be opposed to church authorities. Yeah. yeah. Where church authorities are subverting the message of Jesus. And yeah. and so, and this, we've seen, this is true across denominations and in various historical settings. So, by the way, this is one reason why we must read like um, liberation theology and the and the, the theology that emerges from the margins, because um, these are the voices that are saying this. I mean, Howard Thurman says it in 1949 in Jesus and the Disinherited, that Jesus was a man from the oppressed and that Christianity became an imperial religion. Mm -hmm. And so if Christianity is to survive with any moral credibility, it must must go back to being about Jesus, the yeah. message of Jesus. Um, so, by the way, that is one, one reason I have confidence in my construction of Jesus is because I believe Jesus was continuous with the law and the prophets and that prophetic lineage. I call mm -hmm. that the red-letter lineage of of social justice, legal teachings, the prophets, and Jesus, John the Baptist, too, for that matter. Yeah. Um, these were upsetters of the religious status quo in the name of, of God's valuing of all life. Yeah, it's incredible. And, um, it, yeah, And the way Jesus did his ministry was right there, too. It's incredible. One of my favorite teachings of Jesus is, is Matthew yeah. 23, where he rails against the religious leaders. You, and he says, you know, you, you, you hypocrites, you go out into the world, you make converts and you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Um, I mean, this is, this is an incredible whole screed against the religious elite there. So, um, and that we have ignored so much of that in our construction you know, of Christianity is pretty astonishing to me. Yeah, go, go ahead. The best way to read that teaching is to think about Christian, yeah, it's to think about Christians who sent people to uh, North America and South America who destroyed and pillaged and raped and, and tortured um, uh, Christians who who authorized slave owning, um, you know, and so on. Uh, so evangelicalism was unable to sustain serious examination of of uh, that problem, partly because it was born at a time, I was, I think it was an effort to save Christendom and Christian civilization and kind of white male Christian hegemony. It was certainly not, not open to significant critique from the margins, which, and one of the things Isaac Sharp shows in his book, whenever people, even from within evangelicalism, said, hey, can we reconsider race or gender or political conservatism or uh, LGBT inclusion? And the answer was always no way and not evangelical and we are done with you. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the major propulsions out of evangelicalism is that dynamic. And so clearly one of the major resources for us on the other side is, is to grapple with all of these voices that have been from below uh, this whole time where Jesus is to be found anyway. Yeah, that's fantastic. We have several questions here. I want to ask you one last question before we go to the Slido. Thank you, everybody, for um, asking and upvoting. This is fantastic. So my my last question for this particular segment before we go there, um, at the very end, you write this on page 170. I have written this book not mainly so that I can dissect what I believe to be the failures of white evangelicalism, but so that I can clarify for myself and maybe for others where some solid ground might be found. I am at least provisionally satisfied that there is some solid ground here for building a Christ-honoring life as a post-evangelical. 
I want to ask you, how do you build a construction, a religious, a spiritual construction on solid ground without becoming fundamentalist again? What is the what is the thought process or the 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 caretaking that needs to be done? Because when I read that, there was a part of me and, and some people in my community that thought, well, are we not just rebuilding or reconstructing a new fundamentalism? What if solid ground was itself the problem? Or at least mm. that's our con conception and understanding that evangelical codified. Here are the, the fundamental things you have to believe. These are the things that are absolute and certain and true. And if you don't believe those, then you're out. And then I read in your book after evangelicalism, here's some solid ground that we can stake ourselves in. So help me tease that out, and then we'll go to the, the questions on Slido. Uh, I think that's a great question, Kevin. Um, I, I got that from Bonhoeffer, who, um, who said during the conspiracy in, I think it was in the, the letter after 10 years, he, he wrote to the fellow conspirators, has there ever been a group of people with so little solid ground under our feet? Yeah. And he's talking about like, here we are, we got this Nazi thing happening. It's genocide, it's mass murder, it's war. The church is all, all entangled with Nazism. Uh, you can't trust anybody. Uh, where do we find solid ground? In other words, these people were making life and death decisions to cooperate with the Nazis or to or to collaborate or to resist at the risk of their lives. And what you mean, leaving families behind, leaving spouses and children behind, risking all of that. They needed to know, if possible, that they were doing the right thing. Mm. Solid ground. I associate with the phrase conviction. Yeah. which I mean a belief, a belief that one holds for which one is willing to live and for which one, if necessary, is willing to die. Yeah. And I think that people need for their sense of stability and purpose and identity some convictions of, these, of this type. That's fantastic. Um, because hanging in midair is a very hard way to live. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean you say everybody, everybody has to have the same convictions I have. Um, but you hopefully you find a community of people who roughly says, you know, uh, we agree that these are convictions to build a life on. Yeah. And so we'll do that together and we'll keep talking about what they look like because we're never done in that conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, we all and, need some and core how values. How do you resource yeah. that? It's with scripture and tradition and all that, but yeah, need some core values, things you can build a life on. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Not a fundamentalism, because you're never as certain as the fundamentalists pretended to be. <laughs> that's right. I, I mean, that's that's the great trick is to have conviction <laughs> without that certainty, you know. But I, that was a fantastic answer. I really appreciate that. That'll give me something to to mull over for quite some time. Um, our our next question that was uh, asked in the Slido. Uh, how Gushy's proposal as a path forward, how is, I assume, Gushy's proposal as a path forward different from progressive evangelicalism? His critiques of evangelicalism are mainly against conservatives. That's a great question. Um, and I do want to declare that I've left so-called progressive evangelicalism behind, too. Mm. Um, I also think that progressive evangelicalism has essentially been squeezed out of the community anyway, at least in the U.S., mm. right? If progressive means political, like you can vote Democrat, be pro-choice, uh, care about immigration, um, you know, name your list of, uh, you know, progressive stands, the space for progressive evangelicals is shrinking dramatically in the U.S. scene. It's not as... It's not as true elsewhere but it's especially true here um i'm so sorry but, david can you repeat that well, last you know statement because yeah. you, you broke up just a little bit there oh, okay um i guess what i'm saying is if 
if progressive evangelicalism means basically peace and justice evangelicals, evangelicals who lean left politically or might vote Democrat, um, space for even the toleration of progressive evangelicals has been fading dramatically in the last, uh, I would say, since Obama, 2008. Mm. Um, if progressive has some theological content, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, like with my friend Ron Sider, who just recently died, was a big mentor for me. Progressive for him meant being able to hear and take seriously the justice message of Jesus and the prophets. Mm. Um, I'm not willing to leave that behind, uh, but I don't believe that that ever belonged to evangelicalism. In fact, I believe that was mainly submerged by evangelicalism. But like um, my theology of Scripture is um, is definitely looser than it was when I was attempting to be an evangelical. Like I noticed, for example, in Christians for Biblical Equality, which was a, a pro-egalitarian evangelical women's group that's still out there, um, in their declarations, they, they still have the evangelical uh, tendency to say, our position is clearly grounded in Scripture, here's our passages, their position is not clearly grounded in Scripture. Here's their passages. And we are, in other words, they're making claims based on scriptural authority and essentially infallibility, but our side, our interpretation is better. I, I would not make an argument that way anymore. Mm -hmm. My mm -hmm. theology of Scripture does not require things to be as, as neat as that. Um, so, so I think it's a different theology of Scripture uh, on that side. And meanwhile, if it's just kind of peace and justice evangelicalism, it's being squeezed out anyway. Yeah, uh, it's related to this next question um, that was also posted in the Slido. Why didn't Gushy find more hope in the evangelical left that he used to belong to during his time at Evangelicals for Social Action? I, you kind of mentioned I, that it, you might want to elaborate a little bit more on the specificity yeah. of that question. Um, I found a great deal of hope at the time. Um, in fact, I would say that was how my identity crystallized was right there. I'm an evangelical. I'm that kind of evangelical. Ron right. Sider, right. Tony Campolo, that kind of evangelical. Right. It's interesting that <laughs> within the last few years, that group has renamed itself Christians for Social Action in the last few years. Um, even ESA is no longer ESA because it has given up on right. American evangelicalism. Right. I thought that was really you know, fascinating. It has a, yeah, it has a lot to do with that I think that the evangelical left was never more than about one-fifth or one-sixth numerically of the evangelical community in North America, and now it is a tiny fragment. And I, I, I think that maybe evangelical hermeneutics and uh, ways of, of, um, of handling Scripture and authority and so on— uh, had already doomed the survival of an evangelical progressivism, but but I don't know that may be too that may be too pessimistic. But in any case, um, I just don't think there's any future there. I think the future is in the post-evangelicals. Yeah, this person asks: Is Gushy's vision of post-evangelicalism a vision of individualist faiths, or can there be any vision of unity or of corporate faith? This is the great tension. It's it feels like to me, of the last hour of our conversation. Um, I think that people, Christians, need community. This is something that I haven't changed. So um, I think that we need congregations and small groups of various types. Um, podcasts are great, but we need flesh and blood people that we can gather in a room with. So I think we need some evangelical churches to transition to become post-evangelical churches, yeah. and we need new church plants and we need mainline churches to do as some of them are doing to host outposts or, or small groups for post-evangelicals. And some post-evangelicals are going to rejoin, uh, the, they're going to join the Anglicans, they're going to join the Catholics, they're going to join the Orthodox, they're going to join older denominations, the Methodists, the, uh, you know, whoever. Um, no, I don't have an individualist vision. I think individualism is not adequate, never was envisioned by Jesus as a path for following him. We need a community. Yeah. 
Um, can you share a little bit about the book that you just published on Christian ethics? I mean, I have Kingdom Ethics. Is the next book on Christian ethics kind of a revision of this? And does it pick up a little bit from where you left off? I mean, you've been on this journey for quite some time. You, you know, you hit the news when uh, you came out uh, as affirming and, and started teaching on uh, LGBTQ inclusion in the church. Uh, and now you've written a book on ethics which I haven't gotten yet, but I'm kind of curious where you're headed with that, especially since you've written extensively about that uh, in the past. There it is. Introduction there to Christian is. ethics. Yeah. Um, what this is, it came out in February. It is a rethinking of um, Christian ethics as a field um, from from this vantage point that I now occupy, which I would describe as post-evangelical. Um, so it's you take kingdom ethics and and then take, well, you know, Glenn Stassen died in 2014, um, and now I'm writing on my own, and I'm not trying to, um, to keep the evangelicals happy. Mm. So I'm just writing what I believe both the, the kind of overall tradition of Christian ethics offers as well as how to treat issues um, of our time. It's written for regular people to read, um, and it's getting really good response so far. I'd say it's less technical than Kingdom Ethics was, a little bit less drenched in biblical citations, and a little bit broader kind of options in method and in how one thinks about these different issues. Yeah. I hope you'll get it. Yeah, well, let, let's do it, and we'll have we'll have you back. Um, this I was going to close there, but this um, this question keeps getting upvoted, so I'll close on this one. Um, it is: How do you propose we interact with Scripture if it can be up can, can be so up to interpretation? In other words, how can we avoid making God in our own image? Which I think is very much connected with kind of your very brief summation of, of Christian ethics, because this is where it's going to it's going to be connected to, or come from, or be grounded in you know, the tradition of scripture. So um, I am still a very, very biblically oriented thinker and pastor and person. My favorite kind of preaching is expository preaching still. Um, I, I wake up every day studying scripture. I just don't need a theory of inerrancy or infallibility laid on top of scripture anymore. Mm. What I see in Scripture is uh, an, uh, an ancient collection of texts of the Jewish and Christian people in which um, uh, that has been assembled by the people of faith, canonized, and, and is treated for forever as sacred. These are the texts that we gather around and listen for God's voice. Um, we don't have to pretend there's not uh, conflicts and contradictions in the library of books that we have because there are. Uh, that's part of what's most interesting about the Bible is listening to the tensions in the conversations. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we gather attentively and dialogically around Scripture and ask together, God, what do you want to teach us through these texts? And what also do you want to teach us through our lives and through what was in the news this week? And and um, but but I, I believe that for me still uh, gathering around scripture in community seeking God's voice is still not it's still a, a non-negotiable part of what it means to be church and what it means yeah. to be a Christian. The Bible has always been up for interpretation. Um, the Bible, any text is an interpreted text. Yeah. And and there's never one just one interpretation. There are better and worse interpretations, I think. And it is always a, a danger of making God in our own image. Um, the text provides some controls for that. Um, the community provides a lot of controls for that. Um, but, but I think what evangelicals taught us wrongly was we can have certain knowledge of truth if we, if we just listen to what the authoritative interpreters tell us the Bible means and uh, we discovered that they themselves were fallible. So, <laughs> uh, and a lot of times terribly fallible. Yeah. So instead, yeah. let's together gather around these texts, listening for God's voice and keeping the conversation going that has been a conversation for about 3,500 years. It's amazing. 
Friends, thank you so much for joining us. I want to say again, thank you to our partner, Spark Church. I know that there's a watch party over at the church. So hello, shout out to all of you, to New College Berkeley and the community over there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks everybody for um, uploading, uh, sorry, uh, you know, asking and upvoting the questions on Slido. Friends, the book is After Evangelicalism, A New Path to Christianity with Dr. David Gushy. David, thank you so much for sharing and for your work and for your faithfulness over these so many years, uh, advancing and challenging and constantly promoting a wonderful vision of this crazy thing we call Christianity. And I look forward to your next book after post evangelicalism <laughs> leaving. So so I'll look forward to that whenever that comes out. So, uh, Thank you, Kevin. It's been great to be with you and I hope this has been helpful to a lot of yeah, people. It's fantastic. Have a wonderful night, everybody. We will see you next time. <laughs>